Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What's up, everyone? Welcome into another episode of Equal Play. This week, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation with journalist and co-author of a new book that's available for pre-order now called Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. Jashvina Shah. Jashvina, thank you so much for coming on Equal Play today. Let's get right into things and start from the beginning. Where did this desire of yours to cover hockey, to cover sports come from? My parents lived in Cleveland. So um, their first introduction to America, I mean, my parents were big sports fans when they were in India. They were like followed cricket really closely. But uh, when they came to Cleveland, they became football fans. They were a huge Browns fan. So that's how my brother and I were raised. So we were actually not a hockey family, even (laughs) though um, the town that I lived in in Massachusetts um, was where a lot of players lived who played for the Bruins at the time. So like my dad's barber used to cut their hair and all like he even gave my dad a vintage poster of Cam Neely and Ray Bork. But, you know, Cleveland, Ohio. Ohio at all didn't have a pro team, an NHL team. So it was just never on my parents' radar. Um, so that this is the sports side of it. <laughs> so um, when I, I never really followed hockey. And then when my brother went to college, I was just like, you know, I'm a bad Boston fan. I should really follow the Bruins. And then because the Bruins aren't rivals with the Devils and I grew up in New Jersey, I started watching the Devils and it took like a total of five minutes and I was hooked for life. So that's how I became a hockey fan. Um, It gets a little bit more complicated as to why hockey was a sport that I picked to cover, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, when I was at, I had a really hard time my first couple of years while I was at BU and I kind of clung to the devils. Like um, I, they're the only team that I rooted for that I had close to me. So I have, I had a very special connection because it was it's different when you're like a fan of a team that's not in the same market as you you know back then it was much harder to watch them um you know like I couldn't always watch the Patriots I couldn't always watch the Red Sox you know I couldn't go to games and things like that but right you know I went to Devils games like I got player autographs like I watched every game on TV so it was just very different and I was kind of just like really, really clinging to the devils because, you know, I didn't like growing up in New Jersey and I stopped hating New Jersey the day I became a hockey fan, (laughs) coincidentally, when I became a devils fan. So, um, and then I covered, uh, BU hockey women's and men while I was there. And at some point like, I just, it just became the natural progression for me because, um, I wanted to cover the NHL because of the devils, but 
you know, after covering, covering women's hockey, men's hockey at BU, it's just that there's something really special about the way that people around the program care about the program. And that kind of, that thing really rubs off on you. Yeah. Um, And you can tell. So that's, that's eventually what converted me because I actually was never a, I like, I didn't even watch the men's hockey team my sophomore year. I boycotted them because I was mad. No one watched the women play because the women were really good. Right. (laughs) So that's, that's like the, the sports part of it. Um, (laughs) The writing part of it is just that I, I always wrote when I was a kid, like I always wanted to be an author. Yeah. Um, I've written like stories and composition notebooks that are lying somewhere in my parents' basement. Um, I wrote all the time and it just made sense. Like I, when I was 14, like as growing up a football fan, like the Patriots were my favorite team. Um, I mean, I guess they still are. And I was like very attached to them. Like I was, I would never miss a game they were showing. Like I skipped concerts. Like I'm not, I was in choir and I would like make excuses not to go to concerts if they were on a Sunday. Wow. <laughs> My parents supported me, which is probably. <laughs> um, so I was like, yeah, you know, like I love Patriots. I love writing. So maybe I should just merge those two together. Honestly, that is hilarious. Shout out to your parents for encouraging this love of writing and sport and never missing a Patriots game. But I want to go back to, you know, your you describing your transition into the business and covering the women's and men's teams at BU. And I wonder At what point in your career did you realize as a woman, you were one of the only, and as a woman of color, you were one of the only covering this sport? Mm -hmm. That's actually a good question because um, while I was at BU, I think I had the benefit of being extremely sheltered and the benefit of being in an extremely diverse environment when Uh it comes to hockey. Um, When I covered the women's team, there were three of us on the beat. Two of us were women, two of us were people of color. And then when I was covering the men, you know, I was never the only woman covering the team. And at one point I was not the only um, woman of color because there was um, Michelle, I don't know if you know Michelle J or not, but she was the, she was the photographer for the newspaper at the time. So she was there as well. Um, And, you know, there uh, was another person of color who was working stats as a student I'm still in touch with, Um, you know, at one point, the men's team had three players of color on their team, which is pretty unheard of in college hockey. Um, So I was never, I I was never exposed to an environment where that occurred to me. Uh Um, I mean, I knew like I, I knew because like I had, you know, I took classes and I, I had a sports journalism class where I was the only person who was a woman and I was the only person who was not white in the entire class. What? And I remember my professor, there were like 10 of us. And I remember my professor being like, you know, most people in this business are white male. And he looks right at me. Uh, <laughs> it's like yeah, So uncomfortable. Um, so like I, I knew, but I guess... I had the benefit of coming from an environment that wasn't strictly like that because I think it, it did a lot for kind of instilling confidence in me and kind of giving me solid footing going into it so that when I was, when I did realize I could kind of combat it. Um, But honestly, I don't even really know when I realized I just, 
I don't know. I guess it's like, I always knew, like, I remember when I, even with like the racism part, I don't quite remember like when I found out. Cause now it just feels like I've known forever. After you left BU and that diverse environment that you described, was it more challenging or less challenging? You said it, it helped you in ways, but was it at all more challenging because then you entered a less diverse environment um, that was filled with more white male voices than you had ever experienced? I think it's complicated because I covered Princeton after I left BU and I was there for three years and it was very undiverse as Princeton is, but um, it, it was also not like jarring just because it was such a small community that I knew everyone. And I was on really, like, I was really close with um, the staff, the parents of the players, some of the players, like I, you know, these are people that I'd known for a long time too. So um, it, 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 I guess it just never really came up until it did come up. There was an instant where it did, but I, I just, I didn't say anything. Cause I was like, kind of really shocked because yeah. you know, people are always nice to me. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't expect this person to be a racist. Well, it turns out they are because racists are really good at hiding the fact that they're racist. The problem with that was that I couldn't say anything publicly about it. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that happened while I covered Princeton that were not related to bigotry, but that was just the team just treated me really badly that I couldn't really say publicly about any of it because then it would burn my access. So um, yeah, it was interesting, but it wasn't more so about the lack of diversity and more about the fact that people were just so unwilling to fight to not be racist, I guess is, is kind of what I'm thinking. I wanted to touch on your experience as a journalist because you do so much covering the sport of hockey. You obviously cover Big Ten hockey for College Hockey News, but are also a freelance journalist who has contributed to multiple outlets outlets, excuse me, reported on multiple teams, issues, topics, and stories in the sport of hockey. So how do you juggle all of these roles and being a source for not only Big Ten news, but the latest news in the sport for both the men's and the women's game? Well, um, I want to say thankfully, but I also don't want to say thankfully because the reason for my exit in women's hockey was really not a good one. Um, but I mean, thankfully, I guess I'm not doing as much as I used to. Like at one point I had a part-time job. I was covering Princeton men and women. I was covering the big 10 and I was covering the CWHL, Uh which like, I would show you like a calendar screenshot of like the last week of March or the last week of February, because everyone was seasons were ending playoffs were coming up. It was senior night. And it was just like hell. Um, and I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore because I don't think I have the energy, which is part of the reason why I'm not a beat reporter for a team. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, it's really hard to juggle it. I think like, I don't know, actually, I guess I've kind of taken a step back for a lot of things because it's just, it's too much. And I'm older now and I realize like, I can't, I don't really want to lead the lifestyle where I'm plugged in all the time. Um, 
I'm glad I don't cover women's hockey anymore because women's hockey is a flaming pile of garbage in so many ways. Um, so I can, can you, of- can you elaborate on that? Because <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who don't understand the drama and are, I guess drama is a petty word, but the, the, the happenings in women's hockey and everything from the PWHPA to the NWHL. And obviously that horrendous news cycle when that media outlet that, you know, includes Erica Nardini um, and, and just the, the lack of understanding from people of why that was so problematic. So when you say women's hockey is a flaming pile of garbage, what do you mean? Because as, as a woman, it's, um, you know, we are trying to grow these different sports leagues, but there are a lot of issues taking place in these sports leagues too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, specifically when I say flaming pile of garbage, I am referring to the actual drama, which is really petty, really stupid, and is really driving people away who've been around the sport for a long time, which is very disappointing to me. Uh-huh. Um, Cause I've been around for a decade plus, you know, I know people have been covering it for longer than that. People have been fans for longer than that. People, you know, worked for teams or, you know, been friends with players, um, people who are players. And because there's a real issue in women's hockey, and then there's the drama that everyone makes up. So the drama that everyone makes up is that, so there's like a lot of infighting between fans and they project that onto the play. It's very, very complicated. But essentially what happened is um, there was a professional league. The CWHL was in Canada right. um, before the NWHL was formed. So there was an American team from the CWHL, but it, that's another story. Um, but the NWHL was basically more based. It was based in America. So it was, you know, spread out um, through Connecticut. Like it was in Connecticut. You had, um, my gosh, New Jersey slash New York, um, you had Buffalo. So you had different markets that um, the CWHL was not hitting. Mm -hmm. And the CWHL was not paying players at the time. Um, And then the NWHL spread it out. And then a bunch of people who never followed hockey or women's hockey, like suddenly realized that it existed, but kind of discredited that the CWHL ever existed And now it's just been like, who can shout the loudest and shout incorrectly about things. And it's kind of annoying because people will be like, oh, like that person's throwing shade at the end. The players who left the NWHL had valid reason. Um, The NWHL has not operated well since it started. There is well-documented evidence of that. Uh, The CWHL folded very badly. Right. Um, So I'm not defending them either. But, you know, there's a reason why those players branched out and wanted to start something on their own. And, you know, people are constantly like projecting that this person's throwing shade on that person. Like, like the latest one was that Brian Jenner said something about no women's hockey being um, or people won't know that women's hockey, something about like women's hockey not happening this year because the women's world was canceled and people got mad saying she's a PWHPA member. So people got mad saying she's throwing shade on the NWHL, but she didn't even mention the PW, like she ignored the PW, the fact that the PWHPA had played and on right. national television. Right. So like that's not, she's not throwing shade on anyone. If she's throwing shade on anyone, then she's throwing shade on both of them. Right. So because they not, both played. 
Yeah. It's stuff like that, that we constantly see like myself and others who've been a lot around for a long time and that new fans see as well. And it really turns them off because it's like, you mentioned um, the site that can't be named. Like there are bigger right, issues won't. to fry in women's hockey, like actual real problems. Um, and it's, it's kind of annoying when some, some of the same crowd dismisses these things or, you know, um, defends what the NWHL is doing behind the scenes when what they have to do to fight racism needs to be public at this point. Um, and it's just, it's very tiring. Like when I first started, it was a lot of back and forth between NWHL and CWHL fans. And it was like, like nobody wants to be involved in that. Um, and it's just not a fun place to be because of that. Because like, I mean, women's hockey and men's hockey have, bigotry issues but men's hockey doesn't have the same weird infighting that women's hockey does and it's just like it's incredibly it's just annoying like nobody wants to be a part of it um but on the other hand like the real the real fish to fry is um and we talk I do talk about this in the book women's hockey has it's it's an incubator it's in some ways it's a bigger incubator for bigotry because players fall behind um, being women as an identity and use that as a shield to say we can't do anything wrong, which is kind of like the girl boss phenomenon and the whole white feminism thing. And I mean, that's just, that's the way women's hockey is built. And as we can see, you know, players are not backing down in their support of Nardini. They're, you know, flaunting it. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, what are you doing for your players who aren't white or your right. players who've been attacked by this site? Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I was, I was waiting to bring this up until later in the conversation, but here we are, here we go. So we're going to talk about it. Um, the incident with Nardini, I think to me was a perfect example of why intersectional feminism is so important and why it's critical, critical for white women to analyze what's actually a win versus what's a win for white women. And so we saw a bunch of women, and you just mentioned, who did not back down from their support of Nardini, but what they're not acknowledging is the problematic nature and and the problems that arise for their peers of color and how this will hurt more than it will help and how being aligned with this site that we're not going to name is is more hurtful than it is helpful. And so, you know, your book coming out talks about the toxicness of hockey culture. And so my question for you is, as as much as the quote unquote drama is unavoidable in women's hockey at the moment, do you think there are enough women who are, are tying themselves to principles of value that will ensure that the future of women's hockey is one built on uh, that is one that's disassociated with the same toxic ties that that men's hockey is. I don't think so, just because a lot of it comes from, I mean, you know, people in power that are buddy buddies with these people or the ones who are, you know, the players who are and they don't want to stop it. Um, It's just, you know, for players who are 
good or do have the correct values, they don't really have an avenue to act on those, mm-hmm. um, you know, or to educate people to act on, to like be on board. So it's just very hard for that to happen without buy-in from the top. Um, because like, you know, if I walk into a locker room and, you know, my teammate sitting next to me is anti-racist, but the other 19 people are racist and the coach doesn't care, then like I'm on my own. You know, there's nothing that can be done at that point. Like, even if the person next to me stands up for me, like, what are the two of us going to do against everyone else? That's so disheartening because it, the future then doesn't feel very bright. Yeah, it's pretty depressing. Um, That's kind of the worst part is like, I I didn't find a really good solution because everything depends on whether or not the people who are in power actually care. Right. You wrote something in an essay that said, quote, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to be pushed out as a brown woman. I'm only welcome if I can deal with the racist and sexist jokes, laugh along and pretend that there's nothing wrong with saying people should only speak English in the locker room, that there's nothing wrong with objectifying women. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, uh, kind of a shift or alluded to a shift that, that took place in your career. And I wonder when exactly that shift did take place and when you realized that this isn't just about covering hockey, that your job is, is much bigger than that. Yeah, I would say that it was after Trump was elected, because then a lot of people outed themselves as Trump supporters. I got into a very public fight with then North Dakota's captain. So that was not great. Um, It was just at that point, I was like, I can't. It was more of like a moral thing. I just morally, as a reporter, as like a college hockey reporter, because it's not it's not the same, like, you know, I do it as freelance. I'm not there all the time. It's just, it's very different. And like, as a sports reporter in general, it's not always like the toughest, hard hitting stuff. A lot of it is fluff. Right. And and when you cover something that's mostly fluff, you end up contributing to giving these people power and influence. And we contribute and control the narratives of how people see them. So if I say so-and-so seems nice, like I contribute to how everyone else will see that person, even if I don't really know that person. Right. So at that point, I was just kind of like, you know, I've, I've been, I'm responsible partly for why we are in this position right now. Um, I'm partly responsible for how people talk about these players, how they look up to them. And because of that, they feed off of the views that these players have. So I was like, I can't really change anything about it because the nature of what I, that's just the nature of what I do. You know, I write nice features. Right, right. (laughs) Um, So I was like, if I'm going to do that, then I have to at least be willing to hold people accountable and I have to call them out and I have to be aggressive about it. And I'm, I'm just decided I wasn't going to be complicit anymore in sweeping things under the rug. How important then is it to have, have that uh, support system, um, you know, in, in this business? You can't survive life without a support system. Um, And it's really the same for this. I mean, I have really relied heavily on my friends, my friends who are not in hockey, as well as my friends who are in hockey. Um, I've really relied on the fact that 
I'm very lucky in the sense, and this is so weird, Mm -hmm. but I realized that because I, I feel like this isn't something that like happens to brown women, but I'm like valuable enough in the college hockey sphere that people can't really afford to say, sorry, we don't like you. We're going to kick you out, Um, which is nice. But, um, you know, I've been covering it for a long time. Um, You know, I've known the people at BU for over a decade now. Um, You know, I've been with the Big Ten for seven years. So like these are people who I am very fortunate support me. Uh-huh. And are there for me and we'll never be like we're gonna and I guess like I you know carry around this constant fear that someone's gonna be like we're not gonna credential you anymore you can't come we don't like what you say and I'm lucky that these people are you know they're good people and I'm part of their family so they're not gonna do that to me like I've really relied on the fact that I know BU hockey will not take my credential away from me and that hockey east will not take my credential away from me no matter what Uh, because those are my homes and it's having at least something to fall back on and knowing that I can go there for support is huge. Before we transition into our conversation about the book, I did just want to ask you one more question about um, women's hockey and, and women's sports in general, because you brought up something that was very interesting to me. And it's that, you know, obviously as journalists, our job is to hold people accountable to share the truth. And by sharing the truth, we're holding people accountable. But in sports, like you said, we are often, you know, writing these features that contribute to society's image of players, coaches, leagues, et cetera. And when it comes to women's sports, we're watching these leagues try to establish themselves, try to compete with the entities that men's sports leagues have, have grown into. And so my question for you is what's the answer for women who are covering these leagues and, and trying to, to assist in the growth of these leagues simply by, by giving them adequate coverage, but then also having to write, truths and facts that are are damaging to these leagues as well I mean the way this might not be the answer you're looking for but the way I look at it is you know I had this conversation with one of the players I covered at Princeton where we were joking around and he told me don't write anything bad about me and I was like don't do anything bad and then I won't have anything to write about right Um, I think you just you know you have to say what happens and you can't make excuses for people and ultimately like Yes, you want to grow the game, but like it's not your job to do that at the expense of, I guess, supporting other people. I don't know how to say it exactly, but maybe at uh, expense of the truth, like it's not our job to grow a league at expense of the truth that could also damage it. Yeah. I mean, if if then it's like, you know, like um, take the NWHL, for example, it's not your job to protect Annie Ryland. She did some bad things she shouldn't have done. She, if she wanted better coverage, she shouldn't have done them. <laughs> like, that's it. You know, she cut player salaries halfway through the year without talent, giving them advance notice. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's just, you can't, and you're not helping anyone by making excuses. Because if you, if you make excuses for a league that starts out failing, 
then it's going to be built on a foundation that's not strong and it's not Mm going to survive anyway. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're also here to talk about the book, Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. We've talked a lot during this episode about some of these toxic things that take place in women's and men's hockey are feel beyond saving. So my first question for you is, how do we fix it? It says it right in the title. So what is yours and Evan's answer as to how we fix this toxic culture that engulfs the sport of hockey? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, it's a little complicated because the way, the way we broke it down in the book was that we had answers for, there were six major six ish major topics that we tackled. So it was racism, um, ableism, homophobia, systemic abuse. Um, so like, you know, sexual abuse by coaches, um, violence against women, bullying and hazing. And then, um, there were like kind of not oddball topics, but then women's hockey was put in as a separate topic. Um, so there are, solutions that you can work towards that are unique to each topic. Um, You know, for example, when you look at the systemic abuse, I mean, a solution there is you have to vet coaches, which we don't do. Right. Um, And there's a lot of other stuff, but, and then for example, like um, there are a lot of different ones for, you know, domestic or intimate partner violence or for handling, you know, sexual assault and prevention like that there are things that are specific to that. Um, But I would say, I would say that one of the overarching issues that hockey has is that the structure makes zero sense and it makes it next to impossible to actually report something and figure out who's supposed to deal with it, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is like, you know, it's astounding that like, I know people who play organized hockey and like, don't know what the structure is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense. I go into it in the book, but um, it's very confusing. And then I know the other big thing that we talked about is like, you have to hire the right leaders because those are the people that, you know, have to care about it and have to, at the very minimum, not be racist, which right. hockey seems to completely miss that point. So I wonder how you and Evan got connected to write this book. What's the story behind this book and and you two coming together to to publish this? Um, Probably the most random way a book has ever been written, but (laughs) I guess something upset me. Who knows what it was now, but last year something upset me and I was really mad and I was talking about it online. And then I was like, some, and then I just tweeted, someone should pay me to write a book about hockey's toxic culture. And uh, (laughs) uh, Dave Zarin was like, send me a pitch. And I was like, all right, sure. And then um, Evan reached out to me and he was like, I was thinking of doing something similar. Did you want to team up and do it together? I was like, yeah, sure. And that was pretty much it. The book is available for pre-order right now. When is it actually publishing? When are people actually going to be able to get that book in their hands? Mm-hmm. So the published date is October 12th, 2021. What has this last year been like preparing for that published date? God, I don't know. It's been like probably the strange circumstances to write a book under. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have the combination of no one's doing anything. So, 
but you're also not doing anything. So it's like, how do you function? Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like when we signed the contract and we were working on the draft, it felt like this date or, you know, when the date that we, the pre-order link would come available was really far away. Um, But we also, I don't think we expected to still be, you know, living through the pandemic. Right. The pre-order link went live. Um, And I mean, it just, I think after we filed the draft, um, we were kind of impatiently waiting for it. And then we kind of got a little bit better at waiting because I don't know, it's just so hard to say, like, you know, we saw, I turned 29, we signed the book contract, we started working on it. I got a puppy. I sprained my wrist. Like, <laughs> A lot happened. A lot happened for you in a short span of time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to write a book while you have a puppy and a sprained wrist. Um, <laughs> I can imagine that's not a, a great combination. Not ideal. So what was writing this book like with someone who you're not, you know, you're not waking up every day and reporting to the same office. You're not, you know, it physically in person together. So were you guys checking in every week? What was this process like? Did he have a certain chapter? You had a certain chapter. How did you get this done together virtually? Yeah. So we did check in with each other regularly to kind of see how things were progressing. Um, Uh you know, to talk about who we were interviewing because just based on who we know, sometimes I interviewed people for his topics. He interviewed people for mine. Um, We did split it up. It just naturally kind of fell that we would split it up by topic because it made sense for Evan to take racism and it made sense for me to take sexual assault, domestic violence because I was taking um, sexual assault. I just took everything that kind of is related and falls into that category Um, So from there, it kind of just spiraled out because at that point, you know, I'd gotten systemic abuse, bullying and hazing and some other stuff. So um, Evan took homophobia and ableism. So I don't think we ever really discussed what it would be like. It just kind of happened that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, there was a lot of checking in, you know, how's the writing going? What's our word count? Like, um, we started writing things separately and then putting it into a master doc. Um, And it was, it's interesting because I think Evan and I have very distinct writing styles. Uh So you can probably tell who wrote which topic. (laughs) Kind of interesting, I think, to see. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was, It was good. I think we ended up writing it, though, the draft in like a month, mostly. That's just kind of how it happened. You know, we talked a little bit about the book itself and and the topics and and what you guys dive into. But what are people going to learn from this book? You know, right in that headline, it says how to fix it. So is this going to be a book that goes back and forth from, you know, moments in in the sports history to present day situations that are taking place. Is there concrete answers to these issues or is it more of a narrative? Mm -hmm. So it's designed in the way that, um, you know, the topics are explained, we use examples, and then in theory, yes, it's supposed to tell you how to fix it. Uh 
the problem with that is there aren't really cut and dry answers for some topics. Um, you know, like going back to intimate partner violence, like it's really hard to figure out how to fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, and prevention's the best method, but it's hard to explain. Like, I guess you'll see once you read the book, um, <laughs> but those, there are, there are those topics where there's not a clear cut way of how to fix it. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are recommendations and tools that you can take to start trying to prevent them. Um, So yes, it's supposed to be like a roadmap kind of a thing. Um, It's not narrative at all, with the exception of um, Evan and I each wrote our own introduction. So that kind of explains our background, where we're coming from, um, why we wrote the book. But it's, it, it is meant to be like, I don't know if a manual is the right word, but it's, I think we had three hopes for this book. Mm -hmm. One of the hopes was that, you know, it gives some solidarity to people who are marginalized and like hockey. Um, And that it help it shows people what can be done to fix it, but also that it gives allies an avenue to be an active bystander. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, because I see, you know, I've heard a lot of players, you know, talk to me for like three, four hours. Cause they're like, I don't have anyone to talk to about this. I can't say anything to my teammates. Like, you know, I see this, this, and this, but I, I what can I say? I'm one against 20 people. What am I going to say? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, having, you know, talking to some players who, you know, are straight cis white male, but players who are like Ryan Miller, you know, who play in the NHL, I think, that says a lot for, you know, players who are growing up in the system and they want to do the right thing, but they don't know how, I think it's important that they see that there is a way to do that. What is it going to mean to you when you actually have that book in a hard copy in your hands? It's kind of like I started out with a heart full of energy and then now I'm like down to half. So part of me is like, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. (laughs) But at the same time, like, my whole life, since I was a little girl, like seven, eight years old, I wanted to be an author. Um, my parents and my dad really have always encouraged that. And they've made a lot of sacrifices for me. And they've been really supportive because when something happens too, my parents are usually the ones who hear me complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because I lived at home while I was covering Princeton. And they, they know a lot of what's gone on in my life and a lot of the things that have happened to me and a lot of the things that I've had to deal with. So I think especially for them, because they're, they're also very worried about whether I'll turn out okay or not. Um, so I'm sure it'll be a relief for them once they have a copy. Uh, so it's something to be proud of. And then I think the last thing is, is that, and today is actually dumb. Today is actually the anniversary of one of my friend's death. And we are very close family friends. We grew up together. Um, You know, our parents are still very close. Um, I'm still very close with his parents. And he played hockey growing up. And when I I had had a conversation with him before he passed away, I think when I graduated college and I was like, you know, I don't know what to do with my life. And he was like, you should cover hockey. Um, And the other day, his aunt was like, you know, he'd be really proud of you. So I think ultimately, like, I'm happy that I was able to do something like that because and for, I guess, people like him. Before I let you go, I have asked every every guest, every woman who's come on this show, what their hope is for the future of women in sports. So for you, 
and being a woman who is, has been in hockey, has covered hockey and obviously experiences directly tied to hockey. What's your hope for the future of this sport and more directly the future of women in the sport? I, I just, I hope it's better because I, I talk to people who've been covering the sport for 20 some years and I tell them what I'm going through and it's really unfortunate because nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I talk to players who are, you know, women who are playing hockey right now, women who played 20 years ago, and they're still sharing the same stories about, you know, having to change in closets um, when they're playing games, like all that stuff. And it's, it's kind of alarming to think about how little has actually changed. Right. So I think the biggest thing that I would like to see is that I want to see more support for women and active support because you know what, you can hire as many women as you want, but unless you provide them with the tools and resources and support and you listen to them and you actually do what they tell you to do. And you actually, you know, if they don't feel safe, you know, you figure out what's going on and you, you know, remove the threat, so to speak. I don't know if that's the right terminology or not, but you know, like there are so many instances and especially, you know, this past year, we've seen so many come out where women are like, you know, they've been harassed in their workplaces and like, that's really commonplace. Um, And it needs to be just much, much more supportive and a much safer system. And, you know, again, it goes back to the right people have to be in charge. Um, Cause I can think of situations where things have happened and I'm like, I'm not going to tell this person's supervisor cause they're not going to do anything. So what difference does it make? Right. I'm not make myself more uncomfortable for an outcome that's never going to happen. Josh Vina, I appreciate you so much for taking the time to come on equal play today and grateful to you and Evan for writing this book and, grateful that I'll get a chance to read it um, in October. And for everyone listening, again, you can pre-order the book on triumphbooks.com and on Amazon. So be sure to get those pre-orders in. And when October hits, pick it up in person. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm-mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.